2: Welcome to Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Stuart McNish, coming to you from the studios at Old Boy Productions here in Vancouver. Joining me today in studio are Chuck Brook and Dr. Jonathan Wetzel, two experts on how to increase our use of underutilized land, both government and private sector lands. Now, let's get started with today's show. Joining me right now is renowned and former senior development planner of the city of Vancouver, and retired founder of Brooke Poonie Associates. Chuck's ability to navigate the labyrinth of the approval and permitting processes places him in a unique situation as he is compelled to retire from retirement and return to the housing market and help Vancouver meet its urgent housing needs for middle-income families. Chuck says we have a crisis when it comes to our ability to house the people who make the city work. Police officers, teachers, nurses, and so on. His plan is to develop affordable rental housing on government and private lands that are already paid for. He points out that if we adopt this innovative approach, we can build homes for thousands of people. And the other benefactors are schools and hospitals and a wide range of other facilities. Chuck welcome. Thank you. Hello, Stu. You know, uh, you were at the same event that I was at a couple of weeks ago that uh, was put on by the Urban Development Institute, where they had uh, Dr. Jonathan Wetzel in from Shanghai. Yes. You know, this is a global uh, leader in the uh, study of what's going on in cities, and he said some of the problems that we're experiencing not all the problems that we're experiencing here in Vancouver, they're everywhere. And And the thing that I think stuck out with me The most, and he's going to be on after you, by the way, um, is that he talked about the fact that it's not that there isn't enough land in cities, it's that there's underutilized land. And this is something that's pulled you back out of retirement. How come? Like, Why is it so important that we identify this
1: and then start to do something about it? Because we really have no choice, uh, Stu. And I, I, uh, for the past 30 plus years, built a career on urban infill, which has always interested me. Mm -hmm. Um, And much of my work involved um, finding uh, space for additional housing in Vancouver. Most of that space was for condominium housing, which we see today. Um, I came back because there is a desperate need in this city and other places for affordable housing for the people who need to live here. But can't. So a little point of clarification for somebody who doesn't know, what is urban infill? What do you mean when you say that? Well, you might have uh, a a really good example is a shopping center. Mm -hmm. And our patterns of retail have changed. Our modes of transportation have changed, particularly where you might have public transit, like SkyTrain arriving at a shopping center. There are vast opportunities to begin backfilling the parking lots, the surface parking lots, that might have been very practical in the 50s and 60s but today are a waste of land mm-hmm. and we, we've been wasteful of land uh, since Vancouver started um, we regard land as being plentiful and in fact it no longer is and it's extraordinarily expensive so when you talk about shopping centers I can't help but think okay well hang on a second aren't you going to push back from the community
2: aren't you going to push back from the city if you say well I want to turn this parking lot into a tower and, and, and uh, put people living there Are there not people who are going to say, well, not in my backyard.
1: That's densification that I don't want. Yes, and and, uh, there's always a reaction, or at least usually a reaction, From the immediate neighbors. They're the ones who would feel most impacted by any change in their neighborhood, and we see that all the time. And uh, Dr. Wessel talked about the importance of not just hearing from those voices. If you look at affordable housing, it's a regional need, it is a regional benefit. It's certainly a benefit to the City of Vancouver or the District of North Vancouver, wherever you are, and it's Um, important for the decision makers, i.e. city councillors, to listen to the broader voices and consider the needs of the greater community, perhaps even the region. Mm -hmm. So what we see happening at Oak Ridge, for instance, would be an example of that then, wouldn't it? Well, it would, except that I don't recall that there was any great community opposition to the proposed uh, uh, redevelopment. Well, that's both. true. I don't see it as, a, as an opposition, but as, as
2: a uh, re, reconfiguring that space so that you have greater density. Absolutely. Because there was a tremendous
1: amount of parking space there. It was a sea of mm-hmm. parking lots back in the day when we all drove Chevrolets. Mm-hmm. Uh, big in Palace, Big Chevy <laughs> and Palace, Palace, uh, right. Dinah Shore. Um, but today, we've got the Canada line right there. Um, And what you see is very intensive redevelopment of, in the case of um, Oak Ridge, that shopping center, which Mm -hmm. was a great asset, Uh, in the case of the Dogwood Pearson Hospitals, which was greatly underutilized, had Mm these little one-story buildings on them scattered around the trees, Um, or even Langara Gardens, the the apartment complex, these opportunities to really create livable housing at high density for Um, workforce families, uh, people who can't afford, uh, the Vancouver market, and that includes most of us Mm -hmm. and most of our children.
2: And this is really what this housing has to be directed at. And especially if we're able to take, uh, land that's already been in use, but repurpose it, we can create more affordable housing options is that the
1: idea yes it is and the yeah. idea for me came from a couple of places um i started to work with the north vancouver school district in 1998 when mm-hmm. the board was um, fired because they ran a deficit and the trustee at the time um asked me to come in and give them some advice around surplus assets which might be monetized to cover the debt that, that the board at that time had incurred and so i've been working on asset management planning for Public clients who are land rich and cash poor for years, such as uh, Vancouver Coastal Health, uh, various school boards, and so forth, in ways t- to optimize their operations and at the same time find funding for their programs, usually capital programs, which are not covered by the Ministry of Education, such as uh, the, the North Shore outdoor schools, such as um, additions to play fields, such as building a new school rather than seismically upgrading an old one. Huh. So this is changed, uh, a change in thinking because there's a part of me that goes,
2: whoa, you want to do what to that school property? That's sacred ground. Um, And yet, if we don't do it, then we rob the very people who maybe teach at that school the opportunity to
1: live close to where they're working. It's First of all, you don't have to sell it. I think we've learned, particularly from the experience of Simon Fraser uh, University Trust and also from uh, UBC Trust, Mm -hmm. that land in Vancouver, because it's so valuable, can be leased at the same value as if it were sold. Mm -hmm. So you can lease a land on a 99-year lease and get the same capture of equity without selling it and giving it away forever. So the land does come back to you. In the meantime, what's really critically important now is, let's talk about North Van School District, they can't hire staff. They can't hire teachers. They can't attract staff if the weather is bad or if there's an accident on the Second Narrows Bridge. They have staffing issues because they can't attract people to come and live Mm -hmm. in the District of North Vancouver. There isn't housing for them. So this is where we begin to look at district School district-owned assets. We look at the District of North Vancouver, the City of North Vancouver, District of West Vancouver. Mary Linda uh, Buchanan ha- has uh, started a task force to really begin to look at addressing the absence of affordable housing on the North Shore, and I salute her for that. Mm-hmm.
2: How big of a problem is this when we start talking about access to affordable housing for people who have pretty good-paying jobs? Mm-hmm. How big, like, are we talking here? The number of people that need to be provided with
1: that appropriate housing that is in the vicinity of where they work. Well, you might have, for example, uh, a child who, uh, an adult child who's earning one hundred and sixty or one hundred and seventy thousand dollars a year, and they would struggle to find affordable housing in Vancouver. At one hundred and sixty thousand, at one hundred and sixty thousand, if you could mortgage qualifications and all the other responsibilities that they have, mm-hmm. such as childcare costs, and transportation costs, and so forth, very challenging. Mm-hmm. And that's before tax income, right? So it's very difficult for even our well-educated, um, high-income earning children to afford to live in our own city. That's how big a problem it is. It's wow. not the, the affordability ratio. Typically, safe for affordable rental housing is in the thirty to eighty thousand dollar income range per family and mm-hmm. that's not uh, that's not one hundred and seventy thousand dollars, but the missing middle includes people up to that range, so we're going everywhere from someone making minimum wage right up to someone making a very good professional income. they can't live in Vancouver and they have a really tough time living on the north shore, and if they're trying to raise a family it's bordering on impossible. Well, talk to me about how this
2: works. So let's say we've got school property, and you say you're not selling it, but you're you're repurposing it, and you've come up with a financial model. How then do you put housing onto that piece of property that then becomes affordable? Because are you still not building into the same construction costs and all those other things? How do you then make that affordable for the very people that need that we need to have in the community? Not just teachers, nurses, police officers, firefighters, and so on.
1: This is where public land plays such a key role, Stu. Because the high cost of housing, the most critically expensive piece of the whole housing puzzle, is the cost of land in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else like it in Canada. And... With the possible exception of California and New York, very little of it in North America. What unlocks affordable housing is the ability to drive down the cost of the land. And if you're a school district or you're a university or you're a uh, municipality, you may have land that you've owned for a century The book cost of that land is close to nothing. You may even have captured that land back in Mm. a tax default during the Depression, in the 30s. So you can deploy that land at a subsidized cost. Uh, Because you're not giving up ownership. You're not giving up ownership, and you're providing a community benefit. Uh You can go back to the electorate and the taxpayers and say, this subsidy that we're providing by writing down the cost of our land either partially or in total is our contribution to the health of our community by keeping your children here by providing for the support workers that we need for the first responders and teachers that we need that's where that's the beauty of uh, mobilizing public land because then you've got a land cost Mm -hmm. that you can work with and on top of that we have agencies such as bc housing Yes, um, particularly uh, with recent programs developed by this government that are starting to really um, acknowledge that they're more than just non-market housing, which is for core need people. Mm-hmm. We need we also need to assist low income earners and make housing more affordable for a broad section of the population. So as I'm thinking my way through this, I'm going okay. So you put the that there
2: that that piece of property on on uh, or building on school property. And now the school starts to collect uh, rent because they're, in essence, the landlord. Um, But is it something that you then have to restrict to only teachers, or is it open to uh, people who fit
1: within a certain income group? Uh, It's an income qualification. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, one way to... perhaps make te- uh, teachers and um, teaching staff and school district staff, not just teaching staff, um, a priority is to, say, give them the first 30 or 60 days to uh, to, to have a, a, a right to move into a project like that so that you can attract them to the school district. Wow. You ca- I don't think it's, it's um, feasible to restrict housing to a, specific population i'm not even sure that's legal so you're talking well, yeah probably not probably but not. you're talking
2: uh, school properties hospitals where else do we find opportunities
1: golf like courses i have i have a bead you on be Lang- careful
2: like that i am <laughs> a golfer gonna be too. golfers who are going to be mad at you
1: well yeah. uh, my message um, to those of you at langara is putt out <laughs> <laughs> Put out <laughs> putt out because you can't take uh, a land asset like that, such a low-intensity land asset, on the Canada Line, across from Dogwood Pearson and Langara Gardens, with a with a new Canada Line stop at 57th Avenue, and put push through 36 or 52 rounds of golf a day for the benefit of a, of the very very few. And that's so, a pretty substantial piece of property. What you is can imagine sti- what you could do? Imagine, yeah. and you yeah. still have ample park space. The City of Vancouver in my humble view, need not be in the golf business. They already own two other courses, and there's, I'm sure there's ample opportunity to play there. We can't afford to have a golf course in the middle of Vancouver anymore. That time has passed, and there are many, many other opportunities. The other really interesting opportunity is, let's, let's compare assets. The city of Vancouver in its uh, property endowment fund, which is largely funded by land holdings, mm-hmm. is about $3 billion, roughly. Okay. The Vancouver School Board is about seven billion dollars. The school board has They're more property. The gorilla in what, the room. And what about some of the hospital properties then? Well, indeed, and and as you see, the Dogwood Pearson is a perfect example of that. Yeah. You can take 27 acres that had practically nothing on it, and make it very intense. Build a new Canada Line stop, replace the facilities needed for the operation of the health uh mm-hmm. the health district uh and come up with a, a much more suitable form of housing for people who are in the um in the middle class if you want to call them that so you're devoting yourself to doing this what's the appetite for it right
2: now beyond north vancouver which you talk about because this isn't going to be something that just North Vancouver
1: can do. It's it has to be throughout the region. Oh yeah, it's uh, absolutely uh, throughout the region and beyond. Um, I'm also working in Victoria and on the island, uh, and in any um, desirable urban setting, we're going to have affordability challenges because these cities are attractive to global buyers Mm -hmm. and it's the global buyer that drives the real estate value here and in toronto and new york and in san francisco and uh it's great news for those of us who already own property it's bad news for those of us who are trying to afford it and so why do we need to care about this so much when we think about the future well-being of the city because what we're going to wind up with, and I, and I dare say we're starting to see glimmers of this already, is first of all, um, there will be no ability for us as we age or for our children as they age and want to remain in the community to do so. Mm-hmm. We don't have enough affordable seniors housing and we don't have, uh, have enough affordable workforce housing. Mm-hmm. We wind up with, dare I say it on the west side, um, communities which are diminishing rapidly. that Their housing is still there, but the families and the people are not. Mm-hmm. And whether it's lack of families with children or whether it's empty homes, we're, you, we're going to experience, we are already experiencing, a diminishment of community, and that's very bad for the health of a city. It's hard to believe that we could have that threat in a
2: city like this, And the reason being that we can't provide
1: appropriate housing for the people who have to make the city work. We did a brilliant... If you read the city's housing policies that came out in June, Mm -hmm. June 20th, a year ago, they're really revealing. Because what one policy in particular shows is that we've done a really, really good job of supplying Vancouver with condominium product. Yes. And we've done an ample job or an adequate job of providing non-market housing for the bottom. Mm-hmm. Everything in between has been omitted, and we can't move forward without addressing that critical need now. Because it's the engine of the economy. It's it the engine of the city, isn't it? Is. It is. Yeah. So I have, aside from Langara Golf Course, I've got lots of ideas about <laughs> using these highly valuable public lands in, a, in, a, in new ways. Did
2: you ever envision that this would start to become the reason that you got into this business? Because it, you're you're operating with a level of passion. Now, you've always been a passionate guy ever since I've known you. But you're operating with a level of passion yeah. that has elevated your level of
1: interest in this. Why is it so important? Because I'm older, and I'm wiser, and for me, this is uh, I. So far, uh, I, I'm really just setting out on this uh, task. But it will be immensely gratifying and satisfying for me to make a difference. That's what I want my legacy to be. Not that I did 300 condominium buildings or whatever it is, but that I really made a difference in in finding ways for people to afford to live here. So we can look at police officers,
2: firefighters, ambulance attendants, and on and on, people who will benefit from this. But I can also tell you that I have clients who talk about the fact that when they go to hire uh, new grads from uh, university in Vancouver, they have to pay them considerably more here to be able to recruit somebody to stay. And so the entire economy, I think,
1: benefits when we have entry-level housing that is within reach. When I moved here in 1986 from Winnipeg, where I was a... a an urban planner. I took a pay cut to come here because the salary scale here is lower mm-hmm. and the cost of housing is astronomically higher. So you don't have to be, a, you don't have to be, a, have a PhD in math to know that it's very, very difficult, if not impossible to remain in this city. Mm-hmm. And if we want to continue to grow and be a vibrant, uh, expanding a, society, a real society, mm-hmm. yeah. not a faux society, not a Potemkin City, which is uh, what we risk becoming. Uh, well,
2: there are, there are people who I know who say we are not a, uh, uh, an international
1: city or a global city. We are a large town. Well, uh, Arthur Erickson described it, I think, as an urban resort, which might be a good way to describe Vancouver for lack of head offices and for lack of uh, adequate housing and jobs in its core. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish you luck, because we definitely need
2: this to happen. Thanks for coming in and doing this. Thank you very much, Stu. It's been a pleasure. Joe. Joining me now is Dr. Jonathan Wetzel, Senior Partner and Director of McKinsey Global Institute at McKinsey & Company. He's based in Shanghai. Dr. Wetzel's research has been crucial in understanding the growth and the supports that shape economies and cities in China, Asia, Asia, and around the world he says that even though we think that vancouver's real estate challenges are unique other cities around the world have been grappling with many of the same problems for a long time what kind of lessons can we learn from them dr wetzel welcome thank you sir We here in this little patch of earth on the west coast of Canada seem to think that we have a bit of a unique affordability problem. But after listening to you speak earlier today, it's not so unique, is it?
0: No, I'd I'd say uh, affordable housing is a global concern that by this time in a couple of years, we think maybe over one and a half billion people will be in this kind of an affordable housing challenge. One and a half billion? Why? What's going on? How come... This is a universal challenge that we're all facing. Well, there there are two varieties of affordable housing challenge. There's the challenge where you just don't have any housing. Yes. And and there's the challenge where it just costs too much. Uh, And the first challenge is really a matter of the developing markets and the the Lagos or Manilas of the world. The second is Vancouver, Mm -hmm. New York, L.A., London. Berlin, <laughs> Shanghai. And on and on and on and on. on and on. on, right, exactly. So what are the factors
2: then that come together that create an, uh, a situation where, you know, prices keep rising, they seem to rise out of sync with uh, affordability or income levels in these cities? And, you know, you just mentioned a whole list of world-class cities, and if they're having the same issue, what, what were the pressures that made that happen?
0: Well... Real estate is a really interesting commodity. Uh, It's one of the few commodities, which is actually two commodities. Uh, It's a store of value, and it's shelter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one price does not clear two markets. So for any given piece of land, there's a market for it as an investment commodity, mm-hmm. and there's a market for it for shelter. Are we, you know, I don't know if you know this, but in our
2: province, I mean, there's been this tax that's been put on any land or, or um, a property that is held in speculation. And you're saying as a commodity, that's somebody who's speculating against uh, an increase in future value. Can you actually
0: put a stop to that investment in you know, land as a commodity? Well, when you tax something, we know you get less of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the, the only, so when that, when that tax is applied to buildings, people will stop building buildings mm-hmm. uh, because they're just too expensive. So they are there for use and for purchase. Um, whereas land, if you tax land, what you, you can't get any less of it. So what right. happens is that the value goes up and it forces people to come with new and different ways of using that land. Even if you tax it. If, uh, well, that, that was the... Uh, uh, Milton Friedman used to say that the only the only tax he would approve of was, this, uh, was, was a tax on land because it would not uh, essentially get... You would never have any less of it. It would only increase the value of the land itself.
2: But then that uh, deprives us of trying to make that land more affordable. The more tax you put on it, the more it costs, the mm-hmm. less affordable
0: it is. It does. Uh, then, so this goes back to then what are we using that land for? Now, if we decide that we want to use that land for making a park or mm-hmm. uh, making a, a single-family home, well, that's going to only benefit the people who use the park or that one person who lives in the single-family home. Right. Uh, so we could decide that we instead wanted to use that for transport and build a six-story t- you know housing on top of it, in which case we'd have a different use of that land. Right. It's really up to us. We mm. can decide which way we want to do it. <laughs>
2: How important is uh, continuing to increase supply if we want to maintain affordability?
0: I think that, I mean, it's sort of economics 101, mm-hmm. right? That uh, you know, if you lower supply or you don't, uh, and demand goes up, well, price goes up. So, I mean, yes, it's absolutely critical in particularly environments like Vancouver and other uh, big cities where you do have robust demand and demand is actually critical uh, to the health and the overall standard of living of the, of the metropolis to continue to increase supply. I mean, if uh, we don't increase supply, prices will go up. Cities around the world,
2: though, seem to fall into this idea of, well, we're going to put in uh, this restriction, that uh, bylaw, this tax, and so on. And they seem to slow down the process of increasing the supply. And in essence, by doing whatever they're doing to, to think that they're uh, helping the market, they're impeding it. Are there cities around the world that we can look at and say, well, no, they got it, they increased supply, and everybody benefited?
0: Well, I, I think yes. I mean, first of all, the cities that are doing that are the cities that continue to grow at a healthy rate, that also raise the standard of living for all their citizens, that have relatively good social infrastructure, and so these things are all pretty highly correlated. Um, so, if we look at cities where all that is happening, that's those are the ones that we may be able to draw more lessons from. So, so where? We, we, yeah, where? <laughs> so, well, I, I think it's a great question. I would argue the Nordics have been doing a reasonably good job, uh, and particular Stockholm, mm. uh, which is the fastest growing capital city in Europe. Uh, and uh, that's partially due to immigration and partially due to in-migration from the countryside. Uh-huh. Uh, there's obviously the Asian cities. I mean, I think that for decades, you know, whether it's Korea, Seoul or Incheon or now China or Singapore, they've had to deal with big population growth, spiraling increases in costs. And yet somehow uh, they have doubled or tripled the housing stock uh, mm-hmm. over the course of the last couple of Decades, now so. they they operate under a different political uh, environment than we
2: do and so they, they have uh, the ability to move some of these things uh, through differently um, but are there lessons that we can take from, let's say Shanghai? I mean you take a look at the population, but mm-hmm. the the transformation of that city, are there lessons that we can take
0: from there and apply them here? Well what we see is that most of these areas, I mean, everybody starts where they start in terms of whatever system they have and how they allocate land and how long it takes you to get a get a get a developer's license or what have you. What matters is how fast they improve that. So that's the main lesson, is that what have they done to make that process more representative, more fair and more transparent, you know, faster. (laughs) And so if we look at things like the ease of doing business index that the World Bank puts out, one of the measures is how long does it take you to register your property? Mm -hmm. And, you know, how long does it take you to get an entitlement to develop a property? Uh, So, you know, what they have done is they've digitized, uh, they have uh, decentralized, uh, they have uh, created special courts in some cases to adjudicate uh, matters of environment or property property rights, they've addressed what is their local issue, and they've done so in a systematic way. I think every every locality is going to have its own question, but the reality is that they have to change their process mm-hmm. and, and to make it fit their local context and to do it better, that's, that's what's common.
2: So when we take a look here, you can look at a development application, you know, through the permit can easily go 24 to 36 months, in some cases more that really slows down the ability of the market to respond to the demands of the
0: market. Exactly. And I think that's what we should focus on. We should focus on how well or how responsive are we being? Uh, and, you know, the in some ways, I would say a democracy, that shouldn't be a handicap. <laughs> we shouldn't think our system is necessarily making it more difficult to respond than places which may not call themselves democracies, but mm-hmm. respond faster.
2: Well, the, the idea Idea of creating, and I believe that it has the creation of a nexus line mm-hmm. in Vancouver for the the permitting process around rental housing mm-hmm. has has been introduced, but it, it is not across the board as far as the development of all properties, mm-hmm. and uh, and yet it's it's a it's a good idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Transit-oriented development, This is a, it's an extremely important topic because the transit is creating the value. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 what transit is, first of all, public good that is introduced by society as a way of med- benefiting all of us, but it creates tremendous value in the adjacency to the transit. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, who gets to use that value? Right. Is it a single-family home? Uh, <laughs> well,
2: well yeah. you you touch on a very interesting point here because it has been raised by the Urban Development Institute that we have areas of transit that are underutilized because we haven't built the density around that, mm-hmm. and and yet it's vitally important. That's not is that not the essence of what a city is?
0: Indeed, I mean I, we've made this comment today that you know what do we call a place that where you have lots of people who can't move around? We. Call that a prison. (laughs) The difference between a prison and a city is transport. Right. And, And
2: when we take a look at the way that cities have developed, particularly in North America over the last 40 or 50 years, they sprawled out, putting people into cars and then created this gridlock. We have to get beyond that, don't we?
0: Well, gridlock, uh, this, this, this automotive revolution that we're going into, or the mobility revolution, I suppose, is a, is, is a reflection of technology and what allows us to do. And it's really about access. Mm-hmm. We're saying that what we need is a healthy life. A healthy life needs access to education, to healthcare, and recreation. And so we really don't want to travel that much. Nobody wants to get in their car and go for two hours. Right. Uh, what we want is the education and the health to be here with us, barring that, to be as little inter, inter, in the way as possible. Mm-hmm. So that's, where we're going. And I think congestion is essentially a pricing signal. It says, well, you've done too much on the road. You need to do something differently.
2: Right. So we need to make cities walkable uh, and have a good um, uh, transit infrastructure. What else is important? Uh, as far as making sure that we can create affordable and accessible uh, dwellings?
0: Well, there's a concept of the strong, smart neighborhoods that, you know, within a 20-minute walk, you have everything you need, whether it's security or health or education or basic retail and commerce, public transport access. So thinking at the neighborhood level about how does one provide that to each and every resident, I think that's, you know, the day in the life. So that includes green space. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that very big, large parks don't really do very much for for health for, Rather five minutes of green a day in your neighborhood plot does does miracles for your blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, so those kind of neighborhood level innovation amenities, I suppose, are what we need. Uh, and beyond that, we actually need a conversation. We need to have the ability of neighborhoods to work together as a, and to recognize they're part of a greater city. And that dialogue, that's actually what we need. <laughs> and so we need
2: people to be citizens.
0: Well, we, we need them we, to be responsible and engage citizens. Members of the community. I think these days, in many countries, citizen is a validated term. <laughs> okay, but <laughs> so. member of the, <laughs> member of the
2: but, but you know, we do have a responsibility to also give back to that place that we want to call home. Correct. And if so, then as you say, we can create these smart, uh, livable cities where, where everything is within a very uh, tight environment.
0: Well, it's accessible to us. And yes. That, that's, I think, because we are creatures of our communities, or we shape our communities, our communities then shape us. Mm-hmm. Uh, And the habits so making those communities immediately accessible is is where we start.
2: (laughs) Rental housing is always an important component in any environment because not everybody has the ability to uh, pull together the down payment that's required to to purchase. How important is it that we keep a cap on rental prices so that we can ensure that uh, rental housing is affordable? Is that the way to go or should we follow something like the Seattle model?
0: Well, that's a really tricky question because, uh, the first of all, I have deep sympathy for people who say, well, the rent is just too darn high. You yes. know, if we are making a decision, and this is perhaps not the case in Canada, certainly in North America, where I have to either go to the doctor or pay the rent, well, there's something wrong here. <laughs> and so that, when we are in this situation where it says that it is at that precarious subsistence level of, that we're trying to address the problem, well, then, yes, maybe we need to do something. Maybe we need to think about what it is that we can do to support a more available standard of living or housing standard. But as we know, if we, over the long term, sort of intervene and make it impossible to earn a return on rental housing, then people won't build rental housing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And so, essentially, we look for models. Closer to say the German or the Swiss model, uh, where 60 or 70 percent of the population rents, uh, but it's financed on a long-term basis by, in the case of Germany, regional or provincial state banks, which are there to support the developers in creating that long-term rental uh, finance. Because uh, otherwise, the basically the bankers would just not 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 support it. They would say, you know, I'm, I'm here to sell a building, not not to collect rent over the next 10 years. Right, because they need to have a, a, a return on their investment. Indeed, right. Uh, otherwise, why, why put your money there? Right. So this has to be set up. The whole system actually has to reflect the fact that we do expect rental housing to be a substantial portion of the community, needs on a long-term basis, and that the financing channels for developers to build to that has to be there. Mm-hmm. So we're only just touching on the
2: surface of this in this interview. Where can people go to get more information about uh, the insights that you uh, bring to, like, understanding the the pressures that are at work, um, because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who go, okay, I want to know more. We can't cover it all right
0: now, so where can they go? Well, um, McKinsey slash MGI.com. Okay. (laughs) The McKinsey Global Institute puts out, which I'm a member of, a director of, puts out a lot of research on urbanization broadly, and specifically on this question of affordable housing uh, at a global level and also at a regional and state level. Beyond that, there are many very valuable uh, industry uh, resources. The uh, Lincoln Land Institute—I put a plug in for them. They—they they do a great job of researching all matters related to real estate. Uh, Columbia University has a has a great center as well, and NYU—I think the Furman uh, Center—quite good. And, and I'm sure the Urban Development Institute, right here in Vancouver. I mean, has you know great on the ground experience and lots of folks who could really have a good conversation here.
2: Yeah, well. I know you got to go because you got to catch a flight, but thank you so much for uh, coming in and sharing your insights with us. That wraps up today's show. Now, just before I sign off, I want to encourage you to take in a couple of other Vancouver Sun and Province podcasts. The first is White Towel, hosted by Paul Chapman. Paul and a series of guest hosts bring you everything you want to and need to know about the Canucks and for all you news junkies and all things political in Victoria, you want to tune into in the house hosted by Mike Smith and Rob Shaw. Thank you for tuning in on Apple podcasts, the and the province.com and on the Vancouver sun's YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe because you don't want to miss an episode. And as well, I want to acknowledge Arnold Chang, Greta Gibson And Derek Hader, without whom this show would not be possible. What a great team I have the pleasure of working with. I'm Stuart McNish. Thanks for joining us on Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. See you next time.